Good morning and welcome to Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm your host, Daniel Montano. Study after study has found people with substance use disorders suffer from some of the highest rates of stigma of any mental health disorder. And the discrimination that comes along with that stigma can lead to loss of employment, housing, child custody, benefits, and much more, including access to health care. People dealing with addiction, even those in recovery, face more potential health issues and require more care than traditional patients. Therefore, easy access to health care is vital for them to lead a productive and happy life. But some people with substance use disorders will avoid care altogether because of fear or internalized stigma. And even when they do seek treatment, they contend with longer wait times, and some doctors will even outright refuse to treat them by shuffling them to different departments, for example. Today, we'll be discussing addiction and discrimination in medical settings. What's the source of the problem, and are there any solutions? And we want to hear from you. Have you or a loved one faced discrimination for past or current substance use? Are you a medical professional who has seen this happen? Give us a call at 505-277-5866. You can also email letstalkatkunm.org or shoot us a tweet at KUNM News. We have a couple guests joining us in the studio and another connecting from Española. But before we start the conversation, we're going to establish a little context. Recently, I sat down and spoke with someone who has experienced this kind of discrimination firsthand, and we're going to hear her story. And of course, we have changed the subject's name to protect her privacy. Just a warning, besides addiction, this does include some discussion surrounding abuse, sexual assault, and rape. So bear that in mind if any little ears are listening, or if those might be difficult subjects for you to hear discussed. All right, so without any further ado, here is the interview. I'm at a small apartment in southeast Albuquerque, a little two-bedroom that's part of a duplex, and the woman sitting across from me looks just like any other woman in her mid-twenties, and just like anyone doing an interview for the first time, she's insecure about how she'll sound on the radio. Does my voice sound funny over the thing? Can you hear the, like, weirdness in my voice? This is Kat, or Catherine. She's 25, loves to play soccer, loves her chunky black cat even more, and has been struggling with opiate use disorder for the last seven years. Other than the scars running up and down her arms, there's no real outside hint at the conflict raging within. She first tried heroin when her friend offered her a hit of something, and she took it without knowing exactly what it was. For the first moment in my life, I I felt okay, like... I didn't have to worry, like, a fantastic warm hug. She's been in and out of recovery for the past few years and is currently trying to stay clean by going to an outpatient Suboxone clinic. Addiction isn't her only mental health illness, though. She's been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, major depressive disorder, and generalized anxiety, conditions she's been dealing with since she was just a little girl, long before she first touched a drug or took a drink, and she says those issues are part of why she continued to use heroin after that first encounter with it. Something about heroin just made me feel so calm and content in life, and I had never felt that way before. I felt very confident and in control, so I kept doing it. 
uh, I honestly had no idea that I would even withdraw from it eventually. Kat grew up in a conservative Christian household and was homeschooled. She says she was very sheltered by her parents, so she never really learned about drugs, sex, or anything at all that wouldn't make for polite dinner conversation or was not covered by the Veggie Tales. What she did learn came from snippets of shows or movies she would catch from time to time. It was a really pathetic grasp on what addiction was. I had the that basic stereotype in my head of addicts that are, you know, like the homeless, dirty, junky kind of thing, but I mean that's obviously not true, but when you're sheltered like I was, you don't really understand a lot of things. You just kind of stumble into them. More than just a sheltered childhood, Kat faced trauma growing up as well. Although she's been going to therapy to address her mental health challenges, the events that caused them in the first place still cause problems in her life to this day. I was molested by my uh, cousin when I was a kid and uh, I, uh, I didn't expect myself to get emotional. Do you need a moment? We can stop. Yeah, just one sec. The assaults from her cousin continued until she was able to summon the courage to tell her family, and although the attacks themselves stopped... Nothing was really done about it. I, nobody ever talked to me about it. Nobody really you know, tried to help me through it or explain anything to me. You know, I just got shoved under the table and pushed down. And so I spent the next, um, I don't know, 15 years or so just shoving everything down because that's all I knew to do. She also suffered physical abuse at the hands of her father and as she grew older was raped multiple times, creating the sort of deep-seated traumas that require intensive care from trained professionals to work through. But when she finally decided to go into therapy, she encountered closed doors and cold shoulders. Traditional therapists wouldn't treat her because of her ongoing substance use issues, and drug counselors told her she had to treat her ongoing anxiety and PTSD issues before recovery would be effective. There's so many vicious circles that stop you from getting better and the the system is designed for you to fail. And that wasn't the only time she ran into barriers when seeking health care. She still experiences chest pains that have never been diagnosed and suffers from insomnia. But every doctor she's approached has blamed both on her history of drug use, even though none of them has run any sort of diagnostic tests. No EKG, not even a simple blood draw. They don't even check you out because, because they just aren't willing to put out the effort for you. They think that you're not worth their time. At one point when she had a couple months clean under her belt, she felt pain she suspected was caused by a urinary tract infection. When she went to urgent care, the doctor told her she just wasn't used to feeling pain because she had been using opiates for so long and that it would go away. Another refused to treat her for a flu, saying her temperature wasn't high enough and that she must be going through withdrawal. It's hard to to get help because people treat you like you're going to be a terrible person and and that everything you do is a a lie or an excuse and everything you you do goes back to your addictions. And of course, my addiction doesn't help those health problems. I'm aware of that. But it isn't the source of all of them. A lot of them are things 
that I have had since long before. And as for prescription medications, she says it's not even worth trying to ask, even when she doesn't want medications doctors are traditionally reluctant to prescribe. They don't trust you, you know. They assume that you're going to abuse everything and just misuse it. And, and it sucks. I've had them not want to give me this medication I take for my nausea because they're afraid that I'm going to abuse it. But you can't even, I mean, I guess you could take a bunch of it, but what is that going to do? Just make me extra not nauseous? Like, you know, it's not going to get me high. It's not going to do anything. And it's ridiculous, man. Like, it sucks being nauseous, and I, I need that medication. And so what, it, you know, like, I just have to bear down and suffer because I'm an addict and I don't get to have these medications. Kat eventually did make it into therapy and it has helped her start to live a more normal life. She no longer has problems going into busy public places and is able to take a shower without feeling vulnerable. She's even started trusting more people and it began with finding a doctor who understood her, made her feel safe and worthwhile, and listened to what she said she needed but she still struggles and is no stranger to relapse. There are some good people out there, don't get me wrong, doctors who do actually care and try to help you, but the system isn't set up for you, and so there's only so much they can do for you in the confines of that system. But they're so few and far between. The rest of them, they just don't care. She thinks the first step to fixing the problem of stigma and discrimination is education. She says people who have never personally dealt with substance use disorder or have never had a loved one who suffers with it simply don't understand how addiction works or how to help someone on the road to recovery. For her, the concept that addiction is a choice is a perfect example of the general ignorance and misinformation surrounding substance use disorders. She says people in the grips of addiction don't have the choice to simply stop. To put in the most simple way, it'd be like telling someone with a broken leg to just stand up and walk it off. You can't. You need help. She also advocates for harm reduction. Everything from safe injection sites to full legalization following the Swiss model, where people can go into doctor's offices to receive an injection of heroin, for example, because it is such a safe alternative to street drugs. She also says that education should include children's programs about how drugs work, what they do in the body, and safe ways to consume them. I do think that education on drugs is really important. I, I think that me being sheltered from it did not help my case at all. I had no understanding of what I was getting myself into. And it shouldn't just be fear-based education. That's, that's the worst part. I mean, you know, you tell kids, stay away from this, it's awful. They're going to try it. So why not teach them how to try it safely? For her, the D.A.R.E. program is like abstinence-only education for sexual health. It simply doesn't work. Kat is clean at this particular point in time, and she doesn't take that for granted. It's only come by way of the help given to her by people who love and support her, and she says she wouldn't be able to stay that way without continued support. And for anyone out there listening to the show who might be dealing with a substance use disorder, she has a message for you. I just want to say to anybody out there who is struggling with addiction, you deserve to get help and that you shouldn't be afraid to ask for it. That you deserve to have a life just like anybody else and to get that help that you need and to trust that you know what you need to get 
better and not to be ashamed of yourself or what's happening because there are so many other people out there just like you struggling to get through the day. Once again, that was an interview I conducted to help give an idea of exactly the kind of stigma and discrimination people with a substance use disorder can experience when seeking medical care. And just a quick note, while preparing for this show, I did speak to well over 20 people who had similar stories, but none of them were willing to come on the show or even go on record in an interview because of the stigma surrounding addiction and SUDs. And while that's at stake, when while what's at stake here should be pretty plain, just as an example to clear up any ambiguity, I will spell it out directly. I had another guest originally scheduled to be on the show today who wasn't able to make it because one of his old clients passed away less than a week ago. In addition, the American Medical Association reports that overdose deaths have been on the rise in recent years, topping more than 107,000 dead in America in 2021. That puts it in the top 10 causes of death among any age group. The stigma that someone can experience simply by being associated with a substance use disorder is pervasive and long-standing. 80% of people with a history of an SUD report being subject to discrimination. Moreover, the majority of the general population does not see a problem with that. Almost two-thirds of people said they don't think discrimination against people with a drug addiction is a serious problem. But stigma and discrimination has been shown to have negative health consequences. For example, they lead to higher rates of depression, which has been shown in numerous studies to have many health impacts in and of itself, and they cause patients to delay seeking medical care, giving conditions time to develop into more serious issues. What's more is that this is an issue that crosses demographic and socioeconomic boundaries. Since addiction itself isn't particular about who it affects, neither is the stigma that comes along with it. This is Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM. I'm Daniel Montano, and we are talking about stigma and discrimination against people with substance use disorders. We just have to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment here. Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm Daniel Montano. We're taking your calls about discrimination and stigma against people with a history of drug addiction. Reach out at 505-277-5866 or email letstalk at KUNM.org and tell us your story. You can also send us a tweet using the hashtag letstalknm. And on that note, we already do have a comment from a listener. Uh, There's no name here, but as a recipient of behavioral health... This is actually from Patrick. As a recipient of behavioral health services with a diagnosis of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, recovery from depression, and post-traumatic stress disorder, I climb the canyons of stigma every day. I have a prescription to a controlled substance and must go through some things to prove I don't abuse my medication, like drug testing. But I still hear those echoes of stereotypes and misinformation from even professionals. I once had a prescriber mock me. With you being a substitute teacher, you aren't going to sell these pills to the kids, are you? The best thing I did for myself to end this steep trail was to become a New Mexico certified peer support worker and to educate others that I am living proof that we can do and we can and do overcome stigma and we do find the horizon of recovery. We have three guests joining us today. Here in the studio, we have Dr. Snehal Bott, who is Chief Addiction uh, of Addiction Psychiatry at UNM's Addiction and Substance Abuse Programs, also known as ASAP. And we have Teresa Carr, who is the Head of Clinical Operations at CARE Campus, previously known as MATS, which is a county-run detox here in Albuquerque. Thanks for being here, guys. 
We also have Dr. Leslie Hayes, who is a family and addiction medicine specialist working in at El Centro Family Health in Española. She's joining us via Zoom. Thank you, Dr. Hayes, for joining in on the conversation. I'd like to start things off with you, Dr. Bond, if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, first off, can you tell us a little bit about what you do and how long you've been doing it and, and what it is that ASAP does? Sure. So... Yeah, so I serve as the chief of addiction psychiatry at the UNM, University of New Mexico. And I've been here since 2009 when I came here for my fellowship in addiction psychiatry and just sort of stayed. Um, and at this point, you know, I do uh, some clinical work. I do clinical work at the addictions and substance abuse programs. I also do a fair amount of research at this point, as well as a lot of kind of community education, provider education type of efforts, all aimed towards improving access to quality treatment uh, for substance use disorders throughout New Mexico. And that's, a, at this point, a large part of what I do. Addictions and substance abuse programs at UNM, it's a fairly unique clinic. It's all outpatient um, and really devised to provide all services under one roof. So that allows us to provide, you know, we can do walk-in uh, care for detoxifications, for example, five days a week. Um, along with primary care, hepatitis C treatment, gender-affirming care, psychotherapy, um, kind of treatment for adolescents, as well as pregnant individuals and everything under one roof. So it sounds like you guys do quite a lot. Um, yeah, we try. It's it's still far from perfect, but I think, yeah. Right. And so as we just heard uh, Kat's story, I, I wonder if in your own career, have you personally seen any examples of this happening or have you heard any colleagues participating in any sort of discrimination or anything like that? Um, both. I think Kat said it so much better than I ever could say, honestly. And I found myself resonating as a professional and as a community member, right, with with a lot of what she said. Um, I mean, I remember like we had a you know close family friend several years ago um, who was having a lot of um, who was having a lot of uh, stomach um, pain, and you know we actually took her to an urgent care. Um, this is a you know lady in her seventies was really in pain, and the first words out of the provider's mouth were, "Well, if you're here seeking narcotics." you know, you come to the wrong place. First words. Right. Right. And turned out she actually had stage four disseminated cancer and passed away right a month later. And that just stays with me, right, as, as a human being. And as a provider, we see this all the time, right? Like even so common to call someone's urine a dirty urine if it's positive for a substance. Well, what does that say? Mm -hmm. or, or as this was mentioned, this is almost codified in some of our regulations, that if someone is on buprenorphine, right, suboxone or methadone, that they have to go through all these hoops, uh, observed urines, drug callbacks, pill counts. And there is a place and time for all of that. But why are we doing it? What's the spirit with which we do? And I think, so, so yeah, to answer your question, um, it's I see it all the time, unfortunately. Right, that makes sense. I'd also uh, like to introduce our next guest now, Dr. Hayes. Um, to start off, uh, why don't you give us a little background on what you do, uh, how long you've been doing it, and, and what exactly El Centro Family Health is? El Centro Family Health is a federally qualified health center, which uh, means we provide care to underserved both um, economically and just in terms of um, residents, since uh, many of our cl clinics are located in very rural areas. I've been there since 1994 <clears throat> doing family medicine. I started prescribing buprenorphine in 2006 
and rapidly discovered it's the most satisfying part of my job because you can just make such a difference in people's lives. I mean, nobody ever thanks me for getting their blood pressure under 140 over 90, but people come in all the time and, you know, just say how grateful they are that I got them on buprenorphine. Um, one of my particular passions is trying to get more uh, people who are in primary care to prescribe buprenorphine and to take care of people with substance use disorder, both because I think it's very rewarding for us as clinicians, but also, you know, when I was listening to Kat describe not being able to get her chest pain worked up, if you're getting your buprenorphine from the same person you're getting primary care from, I think they're going to be a little bit more willing to take your symptoms seriously and to realize that you do have other aspects of your medical life besides your substance use disorder. And so, um, and I have to brag real quick, my organization actually got a grant right before the COVID epidemic started. And one of the things um, in the grant was that we wanted to increase the number of our um, providers who had the buprenorphine waiver to be able to prescribe buprenorphine. Our goal was 90%. We didn't quite get to that. We're at 75% at this point. And almost all of our clinics have uh, someone who prescribes buprenorphine. All of our providers have been through the training, so everybody at least knows something about treating opioid use disorder, because I just think that is so important that um, folks have a good understanding of opioid use disorder, because it is very, very common in primary care and something where we can make a huge difference uh, by offering treatment. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we'll discuss uh, integration here in a moment. Um, you know, but you did touch on uh, one thing that I'd like to bring up, you know, Española and northern New Mexico in general has a very particular culture and, of course, is known as being an epicenter of the opioid crisis here in New Mexico. Um, do you think there's anything about the culture or demographics there or New Mexico at large that contribute to that um, or that maybe change the way that you approach treatment? Um, there have been many, many um, people speculating on why Española has such high rates of opioid use disorder, and I'm not sure I can say, but what I will say is different in the community I work in than in a lot of places with a lot of um, uh, substance use disorder is that there's a very strong culture of family in northern New Mexico. Mm -hmm. and. Um, this can be both very positive that people are not going to abandon family members with substance use disorder. They will do everything they can to get them care and still continue to help them, to take care of their kids, to you know do whatever they can for them. And those family bonds are so strong. It can also go the other way that if you have a family member with opioid use disorder who's trying to get drug free, um, if there are multiple family members still using, they can sometimes get pulled back in just because of that. Mm -hmm. So. I think overall it's a positive thing. It can sometimes have uh, negative effects, but for me, um, the fact that my patients have so much family support has really been amazing to see. Mm -hmm. And as a provider that prescribes buprenorphine and, and somebody who's on the front lines of, of that, um, you know, the general sort of view amongst a lot of the people that I spoke to leading up to this is that uh, the percentage of doctors who actually prescribe buprenorphine is, is extremely tiny um, and that it's not growing as quickly as we'd like overall, despite your progress um, up north there. Is, is that true? Um, what is the landscape like right now? I think it is true. It's really hard for um, me to see it from my perspective, just because New Mexico overall, I think, has done really well. Project ECHO made getting uh, providers trained in buprenorphine really a, a priority. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think there are um, 
more physicians overall. I think New Mexico has one of the highest percentages of providers uh, willing to prescribe buprenorphine of anywhere in the country. I think we're like second or third. And um, I think the other thing is um, through Project ECHO and various other um, mentoring programs around the state, we have given support to um, clinicians who want to prescribe buprenorphine because like any new skill, it can be very hard to do initially. And because we often have so many biases, it it's really important to sort of unlearn those biases and learn how to treat this group of patients um, well and correctly. And so... And I think it can be very intimidating. We also have, um, you know, seen all along one of our big fears is um, getting in trouble with the DEA or the licensing board for misprescribing controlled substances. So I think providing that level of support um, has been really very important. Gotcha. And before we move on to our, our final guest here, um, uh, Dr. Bot, you had a quick comment that you wanted to mention on that subject? Uh, yes, Nehal here. So to that point, I think the nationwide data support suggests that only about 5% of all providers have their waiver to prescribe buprenorphine. And if you look at rural counties, which is what most of New Mexico is, over half of them don't have a single prescriber for buprenorphine. And moreover, about 40% of folks who get their waiver to prescribe buprenorphine, that's basically the license that's needed for someone to be able to prescribe buprenorphine. 40 of them, 40% of them never prescribe. And wow. I really want to echo what, uh, what Dr. Hayes said, that I think we've actually done better in New Mexico, far better. And I think Project ECHO has played, just like you said, a huge role. Uh, we recently were able to show that um, when providers engage with Project ECHO, that's directly correlated with them prescribing to more patients. We're also now at UNM building uh, buprenorphine training into curriculum, which is very rare, unfortunately, nationwide for medical students, physician assistant students, nurse practitioner students, again, mm -hmm. to get them exposed to this early and connect them to people who are already doing it, like Dr. Hayes, right? And to kind of start breaking that stigma early. So I'll, yeah. Right. Um, and now I'd like to move to our final guest, uh, Teresa Carr, who, as a reminder, is the Director of Clinical Operations at Care Campus, um, which used to be known as MATS. Um, Terry, what is Care Campus? Has uh, anything other than the name changed since the transition from MATS to Care? And, and what sort of work do you do? Um, a lot of things have changed in the past couple of years, which, you know, that happening during a pandemic was kind of difficult. Um, we have remodeled a lot of the buildings and they've added more buildings to the campus. Um, the detox unit was expanded and moved into a new building. And um, that is one of the many services. The detox um, allows people to walk in to detox at any time. Um, and, you know, there's no need to have your insurance verified or anything it's a walk-in service and um, people can come in for detox services for up to 10 days at a time and they can get started on suboxone or methadone while they're there um, they've opened a new living room that just opened a couple of weeks ago that's also a drop-in and it's uh, they have uh, peer support workers there and so people can just come in and have someone to talk to. Um, we're kind of hoping it can be used as a, a place to come in and talk to somebody before someone uses again. If they've already mm -hmm. received services and detox, that they can come in and 
um, talk to somebody and maybe connected with other services that they are looking for. And then the supportive aftercare community is also housed on the campus, and that's a six-month inpatient substance use treatment program where people live and receive treatment. And they're allowed to start looking for jobs and save money and then look for uh, treatment off campus in an apartment. So by the time they leave, they're on their feet and ready to integrate back in the community. Mm-hmm. And uh, so if I'm understanding correctly, you guys are open 24-7 um, and there's no cost to any of this for them, no. correct? Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, you know, obviously doing my research for this, um, I do have to say, no no offense intended, but um, Matt's did have a, a kind of a negative reputation amongst uh, a lot of the people in the recovery communities, people that had gone through detox there. So this, this new expansion, um, how has that been received by your clients? Has it it's been relatively positive, I assume? It has, um, and and um, I'm I'm glad you brought that up. Sometimes, you know, if we want to make a referral for somebody, I I do like to point out that we've changed our name, and um, and changed our services, and I think improved services. We've gone to a lot of trouble to uh, educate people. Mm-hmm. that are working there, the tech staff, and we have the peer support workers. We we work with a law enforcement diversion program to help people come and access services rather than be routed to uh, MDC. So um, I've been there for three years, and um, I've actually worked there twice. So I have seen a lot of improvement in the last five years and the services that are provided and the level of care and the knowledge that the staff have and more compassion in working with clients. Mm-hmm. That actually brings me on to my, my next question, um, which is kind of posed to all of you um, in general. But I think I'll start with you, Dr. Bott. Um, you know, over the last few years, uh, you know, there, there has been a lot of new research coming out and, and it seems like a lot more discussion surrounding um, substance use disorders. Uh, how has treatment changed since you first started in this field? Um, tr- there has been a, you know, a pretty dramatic change with with growing research. Um, I, I think I, I preface this by saying, right? I sort of hesitated when you asked me this question because I feel like there hasn't been enough change mm-hmm. that reflects the data as, as it has grown. So, for example, right? I'll give kind of one example. Over the last decade, one of the researches that really has um, solidified is that, you know, for most patients with opioid use disorder, and I'm focusing on it because, of course, that's the sort of the big thing that's driving our epidemic right now, right. that the cornerstone of treatment is one of our FDA-approved medications, namely buprenorphine, methadone, or naltrexone, that, you know, there shouldn't be barriers to how quickly those medications are initiated, that even if they're initiated in the emergency department right then and there, that actually improves outcomes. Kind of a groundbreaking, in a way, finding that's solidified. Um, So the implications of that are that if I show up in an emergency department in opioid withdrawals or in a psychiatric emergency department, I would be started on a medication, usually buprenorphine right away, and then connected to treatment. And I would have no hoops to jump through. Mm -hmm. But that's often not what happens, right? This is what I mean where practice hasn't kept pace with it. 
where still there are many places that will require you to meet with a therapist three times before you meet with a provider, right? Uh, or there might be weeks-long wait lists. And, you know, and it, it, it frustrates me, again, because it's... And why does that happen? And I think part of it is this stigma. Kat sort of talked about it, about this split system where people saying, you know, um, uh, one or the, you know, sort of like um, that. So Kat talked about it pretty well. So, um, yeah, so I, I, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll add that to this discussion. Fair enough, yeah. And, um, you know, we do have to go to break in just a moment here. Um, but, uh, you know, Dr. Hayes, would you agree with what um, Dr. Bot has said about the way that things have changed as far as research and knowledge goes, but not so much in the implementation? I would agree. And we were talking about the buprenorphine waiver a little bit ago. And I will say, I do think the buprenorphine waiver actually contributes to stigma because it makes it seem like this is some specialized branch of medicine, you know, whereas... Prescribing buprenorphine is actually fairly simple compared to, for instance, prescribing insulin even or prescribing opiate pain medications. I think it's far more straightforward. Um, there was actually a bill passed earlier this year in the House looking at mental health overall, restoring hope for mental health and well-being act of 2022, which as far as I know has not made it into the Senate yet. But that would, among other things, eliminate the buprenorphine waiver and mean that any primary care clinician could prescribe this. And I think that would be a great step forward because I think this is something that all primary care clinicians should be doing. Mm -hmm. Well, um, we are talking about the role of stigma and discrimination when people with a substance use disorder seek health care. This is Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM. I'm Daniel Montano. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico on KUNM. We are looking at addiction and medical discrimination here on Let's Talk New Mexico. There is still time to call in this morning at 505-277-5866. And we do have an email from Paula. She says, I totally relate to the woman being interviewed. She is so brave to share her story. I'm sending lots of prayers for her continued recovery and healing. Thank you for the show this morning. I totally agree with her recommendation of a better education, not just fear-based about drugs and addiction. And if you would like to uh, be a part of the conversation, like I said, give us a call, 505-277-5866. Now, before the break, we were talking about the way things have changed over the last few years. Um, I think I'd like to move next into what needs to change going forward, um, you know, especially on a, a structural um, and a policy level. Um, Dr. Bott, would you like to start with that? I can certainly start with it, and I can touch upon two points. One is the education system, which I think was touched upon briefly before. So nationally, there is very little um, focus on substance use disorders and their treatment um, as people go through medical school, for example, which is striking given how much it's affecting our communities. And often what happens is that, you know, when I talk to residents, um, you know, medical trainees, medical students, as they go through their training, the only people they see with substance use disorders are the ones who are not doing well, who, for example, are in the emergency department in withdrawals or maybe with liver disease. They never get a chance to talk to people who are doing well, which is a substantial portion of people with a history of substance use disorders. They never get to talk to them about, right, things Kat talked about, Daniel, in your interview, like, that there is a cat that cat loves, right? And uh, she likes playing soccer, like this whole other story 
the resilience that that may have ta- it may have taken to overcome the traumas, they never get to learn that. So all these stereotypes views get reinforced, and especially as they hear comments from other staff about someone being quote unquote a frequent flyer or being an addict or having a dirty urine. So to break that, we gotta start exposing people early, right? We gotta start giving platform to people with lived experience as part of the education process, because I think that's a powerful tool to start breaking that stigma. And second thing I would touch upon, especially here in New Mexico, but also elsewhere, is creating a more seamless structure. So for example, someone's at the care campus, they do a great job, they get detox, but then making sure that right at discharge, they are in treatment, that there isn't a week or a month because things can go wrong, right? And similarly, if someone's incarcerated, that still bothers me, keeps me up thinking about it, how there is no treatment available. Um, you know, in many jails, prisons, etc. So kind of creating that seamless system by everyone working together rather than siloing out uh, SUD treatment, like again, like Kat talked about. Right, right. You know, another thing that um, I, I've heard comments on that is a, a big issue um, that uh, could be a useful tool in fighting stigma is the language we use when discussing substance use disorders. Um, you know, Terry, would you like to maybe comment on that a little bit? I would. Um, language matters. And, and um, the mention of the dirty UA, or Kat mentioned in her interview, the word junkie, um, those those need to be eliminated from our vocabulary, and we need to, you know, I, I think as professionals, we've decided which words we should be using or how to replace those words. Um, I think that that is part of the education that Dr. Bott was talking about, and, and that it needs to be at every level, not just with clinicians or providers, but also paraprofessionals all the way down to um, a security guard or a receptionist sitting at a front desk that um, those are the those are the first people that are that that are clients that's the first person whose path they cross and if they're feeling any kind of judgment or uh, stigma from that person that's going to prevent them from even walking in the door and and I have witnessed that um, in those situations, people have avoided coming in for services just because of a security guard in a parking lot or a person sitting at, at, at a front desk directing them which direction to go in a mm-hmm. building. So the education is very important at every level, mm-hmm. and, and, and it can't be just once. It would have to be kind of the beating of the drum gently reminding, well, we're using this word now instead of this one, and Mm -hmm. it would need to be constant. Right. And Dr. Hayes, I know you had some comments you wanted to bring up about that particular topic as well, right? Absolutely. The language is so important. I always tell people, you know, I want you to picture a fentanyl addict, and you're probably picturing somebody not very nice who's, you know, stealing from family or things like that. And then now picture a person with uh, opiate use disorder. And that just sounds so much more hopeful. That's, you know, a real person who happens to have a medical condition that's probably treatable and we can do something about. And it just completely changes the way that we look at them. 
And going back to Dr. Bott's point about we only see people with substance use disorder that's poorly controlled. When I was in medical school, I went to a conference and um, there was a Dr. Joseph Smith from San Francisco and he made a comment that resonated with me and I still remember to this day. He was talking about um, addiction. He said, you know, if you only saw breast cancer after it had metastasized, you would find breast cancer just to be very discouraging and overwhelming. He said, but we diagnose it early and so it's very treatable. We need to do the same thing with substance use disorder. We need to diagnose it early um, and when it's still treatable and then we will find it much more satisfying to treat. Right. And um, we do have a caller. Uh, this is Mark from Albuquerque on the line. Are you there, Mark? Uh, I'm yes. Awesome. So I understand that you have about 50 years in the field and you just moved to Albuquerque. Is that correct? Yes. Um, I practiced 40, well, I'm still practicing, semi-retired, um, 40 years in Oregon. Um, so in addition to 10 years in California working street gangs and stuff like that. So I hear uh, the discussion and the issues that have uh, been a common theme. And I guess what I want to bring up as a black Indian normie in the field for 50 years that um, I come from a medical family. Father's a doctor, sister's a doctor, daughter's a doctor, and they're all black. So the discrimination they found within the medical field as professionals and entering the field is also felt by people um, who are patients. So uh, I send you an email basically talking about a biracial woman um, who was, like Kat, r repeatedly raped by her stepfather, called N-word, called B-word, mm -hmm. self-medicating with alcohol, presents herself to long-term residential women's treatment, and is discharged inside of three weeks for raising issues of race, correctly raising issues of race. Uh, because the majority white 12-step community in that particular treatment center didn't feel comfortable with her raising issues of race. And that has to be a presenting problem that needs to be dealt with. And there's actually a science of how you, you know, deal with racism. Um, for example, a concept of microaggressions, which is 70 years old, but now just you know, getting some national prominence uh, needs to be incorporated with that because there is no pill that can help you deal with systemic discrimination. You have to, that is a skill-based um, thing that needs to be taught as part of treatment. And we need to look at the culture of treatment and recovery. And recovering from racism is definitely uh, a part of the field that needs to be innovative. And I presented at conferences about that and tried to get stuff with NADAC as well. So I think it's timely uh, to look at that research and the practices that need to happen and to improve the field. And I'm ready to go to work here. <laughs> well, we're glad you're here doing the work. It's definitely appreciated. Thank you, Mark, so much for the comment. Um, you know, uh, next, I'd, I'd like to talk about um, 
another prevailing issue surrounding addiction. You know, in the 1930s, research around addiction came to the conclusion that it was caused uh, caused by a moral failing of some sort. But the American Medical Association first classified it as a disease all the way back in 1954. Why is it that nearly 70 years later, it's still so difficult to get people to think of substance use disorders as a health problem as opposed to a moral failing of some sort? Um, and uh, we also, before we get into that question, we did just have a question come in from a caller. So I'll, I'll get into that moment. Um, I think this would be good for you, Terry. We had a caller who is in recovery but didn't feel comfortable being on the air. Um, and they want more info about detox centers and in-treatment, in in-house treatment uh, facilities, um, and whether or not there are sponsors who are willing to travel and help folks, um, and where they can find more of that sort of information. I, I, I wouldn't be able to speak to sponsors. Mm-hmm. I, I think that this topic is kind of speaking to the lack of resources in in the rural areas of New Mexico, and that ends up being most of the state. And, you know, I have found at the CARE campus that a lot of people come in from all over the state. And um, we're oftentimes at capacity, Mm -hmm. and so we're oftentimes receiving calls wanting to know if there's space because I'm going to drive up from Silver City with my brother and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So... um, there, there is a lack of resources. I've, do you I know how know. many? Do you know how many detox facilities there are in Albuquerque? I believe uh, Haven Hospital has one, mm-hmm. and um, Haven and uh, Turquoise Lodge, mm-hmm. and um, I think some pe- a lot of people end up going through emergency rooms and starting that process and then getting placed. So gotcha. um, we're underserved. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Bott, you guys do detox at ASAP, you said, right? We do, yeah, we do detox at ASAP, but it is all outpatient. We don't have an inpatient um, mm-hmm. facility. But right now, I mean, I just kind of put this out there that through a like a federal grant that I have, we can actually, people who are interested in treatment for opioid use disorder, uh, we could potentially get them in the same day or the next day. So wow. without a wait list, which is, you know, which I'm happy, happy about. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, just a note to anybody listening, we will have the phone number for uh, Care Campus and for ASAP on our website at the uh, the web posting for this show. Um, and, and sorry, really quickly, there yeah. is a website called the Dose of Reality, uh, New Mexico Dose of Reality, which lists all the resources that are available, among okay. other things. New Mexico Dose of Reality. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. Um, and, uh, you know, going back to my question about what makes it so difficult to get people to understand um, that substance use disorder is a health issue as opposed to a a moral issue. Um, um, Dr. Hayes, would you like to answer that question perhaps for a little bit? I can give it a shot. I mean, part of it is when you look at people who are using it, it seems like the solution is obvious that they just don't use. But I think that ignores the fact that these drugs really hijack the control centers of the brain and make it, um, you know, basically undermine willpower in a way that's um, difficult to see from the outside. 
The other thing I think that we're ignoring if we look at it as a moral failing is how much trauma many people with substance use disorder have. Um, we talk a lot about adverse childhood events and like Kat who spoke earlier, many people with substance use disorder have a history of sexual abuse. They have a history of childhood abuse, severe childhood poverty with deprivation, um, divorce or death in their childhood. And so when we look to punish people with substance use disorder, we're basically punishing formerly abused children, which when you think about it, we're punishing people for the trauma they've already experienced, which um, just does not feel uh, very good to think about it that way. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and looking here, um, you know, Dr. Bott, I'd like to ask you, um, you, you know, before, because we are reaching the end of the show here, you already mentioned that there was um, a couple education, uh, you know, things that need to happen in order for stigma to really be um, eliminated. Uh, where can people go to receive that sort of education? Do you know of any? Um, so we have done actually through what's called the uh, Southwest node of the NIDA clinical trials network, we've done some public trainings on that, um, you know, which were pretty well attended. Um, and, uh, you know, and we are also planning to using some of the echo, echo formats, et cetera, roll out more public trainings on it. So we actually, um, you know, and I think all of that will be on dose of reality, which is kind of, again, made possible by a similar federal grant. Mm -hmm. So I think we're going to be doing some more trainings on stigma as well for the lay public as well as as well as for the professional community. And that will be listed there. Excellent. That is good news. Um and we do have a tweet that came in from a listener. This is from Samantha. She says, we need to d discuss decriminalization and legalization to reduce fentanyl deaths, stigma, and dangers associated with substance use disorder. We are unfortunately approaching the end of the show, and that is a very deep uh, topic that could definitely be its own show. Um, uh, you know, does would anybody like to comment on, you know, perhaps, I mean, Kat even mentioned the Swiss model. Um, do you think does anybody think that's something that could happen anytime soon in New Mexico or in the United States? So some of that is already underway, right? Snehal here just quickly addressing it. So, for example, New York's New York City opened up its first two kind of, you know, what are called overdose prevention centers, mm -hmm. uh, which are, you know, uh, where people go in and they're bringing their own um, syringes, their own substances. Um, and, and, and the data that's early data is actually showing really promising data, which is similar to what's been shown mm -hmm. in some of the European countries and Canada. So I think the movement has slowly begun to explore. I think key would be to do it safely and to gather a lot of data so we know how to best do it. Right, right. That makes sense. Um, Dr. Hayes, uh, before we go, did you have any last comments uh, before the end of the show? I'm grateful that you're covering this. I think this is such an important topic. I think if we can get rid of stigma, we can make a big deal of difference on um, treating people with substance use disorder, and I think it will just make society better as a whole. Right. 
Well, that is all the time we have for today. Thanks to everyone who called and emailed and tweeted to share their thoughts. Thanks so much to our guests, Dr. Snehal Bhatt, Dr. Leslie Hayes, and Teresa Carr, and of course, Catherine for her interview. Let's keep the conversation going, though. Share your ideas on Twitter using the hashtag Let's Talk NM. On Facebook, you can search for KUNM Radio or email Let's Talk at KUNM.org. If you missed a part of the show, uh, you can stream it online or subscribe to our podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Our engineer is Marino Spencer. Taylor Velasquez screened your calls. Kaveh Movahead live tweeted. News director Megan Kamrick is our executive producer. Join us next week when we will talk about the amendment on November's ballot seeking more state money for early childhood education services. I'm Daniel Montano. This is Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM.